0: There's a worry epidemic in our society. There were 7 million anti-anxiety prescriptions offered on the NHS last year. And the Anxiety Association of America claims that if you're a woman, you're twice as likely to suffer from chronic worrying than men. I just am a bit unlucky. Um, I suffer from what's called GAD, GAD. That's uh, a very unpleasant name for something that is much more unpleasant than it sounds, which is called Generalised Anxiety Disorder. So I like to frighten myself by speaking to 800 women uh, <laughs> as part of my therapy and recovery. Help me to just enjoy that for this moment whilst I feel a little shaky. I'm here as a co-warrior on a journey of freedom, and I'm also hopefully embodying something of the truth that you can be set free from your worries. You know, Worries don't need to cripple you in life or ministry. And actually, Jesus has come to set you free for something greater, for something bigger than this. But you have to be active in your recovery. You have to choose to agree with God in the work that he's doing in your life today. If you're a worrier, you may have been told 100,000 times, don't worry, especially church leaders, of which I am one. Uh, extreme provision at saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry, trust God, don't worry. And we all think, yeah, if it was as easy as that, I would have done it already. And so I want to introduce the first concept to you right now, which is that thought suppression does not work. Thought suppression does not work. Now we're going to do a little experiment. It's very timely. And um, I thought I was the only man in the room, but a couple of others I would introduce you to, my dear friend, Daniel Craig. And uh, what I want you to do is not think about James Bond right now. So do not think about James Bond Do not think about Daniel Craig in any way, shape or form right now. I'm not sure why you're laughing down here, but can I be absolutely clear, this is a very serious instruction. It's essential that you do not think about Daniel Craig or about James Bond right in this very moment. It's absolutely prohibitive. How are we doing with this? (coughs) I take it by the nervous laugh that we're not actually being very successful in doing this. Now, I want you to know that thought suppression is the primary way by which Christians believe that they're going to overcome their worry problems. They think, "Oh, if I, I'm not going to think about the thing that's worrying me. I'm not going to think about the thing that's troubling me. And by doing so, they've, if you like, highlighted a marker in their mind that this is a significant problem they need to be very, very aware of all of the time in order that they don't uh, think about that particular thing. Now, it's obviously an oxymoron. If we put a big flag up in our mind saying, do not think about Daniel Craig, every time we kind of meander away from what's distracting us at the moment, we begin to think about Daniel Craig. And in fact, throughout this talk, unless I tell you you can now think about Daniel Craig at your liberty for two whole minutes, you would carry on thinking about Daniel Craig because you'd be thinking, I must not think about James Bond right now. I must not think about James Bond right now. Now in order to overcome worry, to start with, we need to begin with the principle of saying that what we suppress, what we repress and what we deny has power over us. You know, the sun has come to set you free and to bring what is in the darkness into the light. Why in churches would we teach you to suppress and hide things which are hidden, things which would bind you, when instead Jesus has come to say to you, let's bring these things into the light, friends. Let's bring them under the authority of the cross and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Because my power is great. My power is far greater than any of these things which hold you back. There are three life systems I call this meerkat mind. I came here with a few things in mind to soften the crowd. One was Daniel Craig, the other one was meerkats. (laughs) We have three life systems, and they are productivity, productivity, recovery, and security. And these three life systems are common to all human beings. If you think about productivity, you are undoubtedly productive during your day. And if you think about recovery, hopefully you take time to rest and sleep and eat and relax. And if you, think about <coughs> excuse me, if you think about security, you think about how you keep yourself safe in any particular day. Scientists will call this the endocrine system, a system which controls our well-being. And recovery from chronic worry is not getting rid of the security system of your mind. In fact, if you got rid of that security system, when you walked out of this building, you wouldn't last very long. It's that security system, it's that endocrine system, which will control your ability to cross the Brompton Road in one piece. You need a level of anxiety in your life if you want to live well. God's created for you for this, but he's created you for this in balance. These three systems work together in balance. And when they work together in balance, they work together brilliantly. But when the security system takes priority, the other two systems don't work very well at all. Let's think about that just for a minute. If, for example, I'm busy being productive but I'm worrying underneath about my unproductivity. When it comes to my recovery period, I'm consumed by anxiety. So I work very hard in the office all day, I come home and I sit down on the sofa and I feel terribly anxious about what I've not done, what I've left in the office. I spend my whole evening fretting and worrying and stressing about what's being left undone and what I'm going to have to undertake the next morning. And therefore, my recovery system is inhibited. I don't recover properly, I become less productive in the office the next day, The next evening, I worry even more that I've been less productive than I was the day before, and then I wake up the next morning feeling much more anxious about the work that I've not yet done. Now, if we do not (coughs) balance these three systems together, we're in real problems. And I want you to recognize in this meerkat uh, illustration that the sentinel, the meerkat responsible for security, is on duty all the time. If you've ever been to London Zoo and you've seen, seen the meerkats playing, you'll see two of them standing on top of the homes of the meerkats. I'm not sure what you call those, meerkat homes. And the two meerkats are standing there, and they're looking out, and they're scanning the horizon for any wily coyotes or passing German tourists that might be in the area. And then when they see them, they just tell everyone that there might be danger at foot, sandwiches might come flying into the enclosure, and they need to go down into their tunnels. It doesn't matter how much fun the, the, the uh, meerkats are having, playing and being productive, digging their burrows, As soon as the sentinels say, it's time to go downstairs, everyone goes downstairs without fail. In your own security systems, if your worry system has become overactive or predominant, it doesn't really matter what else is going in your life. That will dominate. It will dominate your life. It will be as if every time you're playing, particularly when you're relaxing, your opportunity to relax and recover has been stolen from you. Who he, here would say that they, they would classify themselves as a warrior? I'm putting my hand up. Good, okay. About half of the room. And Rob and I have done a lot of work on this. And what we want to say, to what we'd say, Rob is um, my partner in mind. So he's a consultant psychiatrist, and um, we, we would think about Myers-Briggs typologies, personality typologies, and we would actually argue that there is there is actually a fifth typology. And that's the, what we classify as the neurotic. But actually, that sounds worse than it actually is. Um, I'm a little neurotic. That's okay, it's a personality style. We could call it the worrier type. Now, there is a type of person, a character style, which is slightly more neurotic, slightly more worry-based than other styles. And to a level, that's okay. Actually, there's a lot of function added to worry. Worriors tend to be very compassionate, very caring, often very high-functioning people. The important thing is we recognize that whatever our natural leaning, we get these things in balance. And we ask God to help us to function well in all of our life systems. Now, what are the trouble about going to do a talk like this about worries? Loads of people in the crowd go, yeah, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through right now. You know, I've got real things to worry about. So don't try and psychologize my worries away because actually my mum is really sick and my job is really insecure and my finances are in real trouble. And you're absolutely right. I'm not here to try and take away your serious and real concern today. I'm here to help you with 90% of your problems. Come on. I just slipped that one under the radar like that was easy. (coughs) Let's um, have a look at this. We're going to start by delineating the two different types of worries that we want to deal with today, and they're called solvable and floating. There are two types of worries. Solvable worries result from concrete problems, they're present time orientated or time limited, and they can be measured by finite outcomes, and they respond well to problem-solving techniques. If If I've not got a job, that is a problem and I'm worried about it. But it is solvable on a level that I can do something about it. I can go to the job centre, I can prepare my CV, I can take advice, I could do an apprenticeship, I could get more training, and ultimately I hope I can resolve my worry by getting a job. But floating worries result from undefined anxieties, they're not time-limited, they have no measurable goals or outcomes, and they do not respond to problem-solving techniques. You know, friends... 90% of your worries are not solvable worries. 90% of your worries are floating worries. 90% of your worries are things like, I don't think anyone in church really likes me. (laughs) It's totally undefinable what does like actually mean. It's totally untime limited. Do they not like me this week or maybe next week they'll all start to like me. There's no measurable goals or outcomes. Uh, How can I measure whether people now like me or not? And they don't respond to problem-solving techniques. I can never think, oh, I could problem-solve my way through this and and suddenly I'd have an answer to how I can make everyone in the church like me. 90% of your worries are rooted in floating, not-solvable outcomes. And that's why I can help you to deal with these worries today. Let's just have a think for a minute about all the worries that you've had in the last six months. So if you just bring those all to mind quickly... (coughs) So what I want to do is, whilst in a a group here, think about all the worries that you've had in the last six months, and I want you to put your hands up if a hundred or more of the worries that you've had in the last six months have come true. So if you could just put those up now. Okay. One person (laughs) who's had a very bad year. (laughs) Anyone 50 or more worries that they've had in the last six months that have come true? Someone else had a really, pretty terrible year. 30 or more of the worries that they had in the last six months have come true. Another person's had a really terrible year. Ten or more of the worries that they had in the last six months that have come true. Three people. Okay, so six people so far out of 800 of you have had a significant number of the worries that that they've experienced come true. That means that 794 of you have had less than 10 of all of the worries that you've had in the last six months become a reality. Think about how many worries you've had again in the last six months. How many days that go by for many of you where you have 20 or more worries. Think about the statistics of that. Think about the reality of that. For 794 of you, a lot of time has been wasted. That's frustrating, isn't it? That's what frustrated me in my life, because I began to think, actually, I can live my life better than this, and God's got plans for me, and purposes for me, and those plans and purposes aren't spent in me ruminating about what might or might not happen all of the time. Now, if we introduce a little bit of neuroscience, I'm going to introduce you to this ant, And a part of our brain called the amygdala, a little walnut-shaped center part of the brain, produces a whole huge array of anxiety-provoking thoughts all the time. And our frontal lobe is like the policeman of our mind. And that tends to control which of these thoughts enter our consciousness and which just seep through our sort of subconscious uh, sewer, if you like, that goes in one ear and comes out the other. Now, I like to call these sort of anxiety-provoking thoughts ants, or you can call them gnats if you like, gnats less than ants. But they're either automatic negative thoughts or negative automatic thoughts. You know, these are the thoughts that come into your mind and you're just enjoying an episode of Downton. And just whilst you were thinking about how good looking Carson is, you <laughs> suddenly, gut wrenchingly, had a moment where you felt like you were going over a roller coaster and your stomach kind of whipped up into the back of your throat and then down again and you remembered something that made you feel deeply anxious. I think that Sue at work gave me a slightly funny look, and somehow I've upset her, but I just can't think how. Has anyone had that thought? She gave me an odd look, and I thought I've upset her, but I'm trying to think about what I might have said and done. And so I'm going to spend the next eight hours worrying about Sue and about what Sue might have thought I might have done accidentally, even though I've not really had a lot of touch with Sue. Maybe that's the reason why she's actually feeling cross with me, that I haven't been too kind to Sue. So I'm going to send Sue a text message now to see if she's all right. Sue, it's Will here from the office. I just wonder if you're doing okay. LOL, Will. And then I sit back down and I think to myself, I'm going to enjoy the rest of Downton now. And and then just a little bit later on, I suddenly think, oh, my goodness. Sue is going to think I love her a lot. So this is, this is, and I'm married, so this is going to be really bad. And now I'm going to spend the next eight hours of my night worrying about what I'm going to do or say tomorrow in the office. So all the other people are going to be looking at me weirdly and thinking that I LOL sue. What we, reco- what we need to recognize within ourselves is that we are threat-sensitive people. And when your system, when your recovery system is overextended, when you're stressed, when you're overtired, when you're undernourished, when you haven't been looking after yourself properly, your threat sensitivity is massively heightened. And these musings of our minds take on a greater value or greater significance than they need to. What we need to do, friends, is change our relationship with worry. We do not need to resolve our worries. This is an idea for you. You have a biological disposition to believe your worries are realistic. This is one of the most important things that you can understand about yourself today. You have a biological disposition to believe that your worries are realistic. You know, the endocrine system and the security system in your body is amazingly complex and powerful, but it actually deposits hormones into your blood in an instant. If you feel worried about something, your body affirms the fact that this is a significant problem for you. We talk about the fight-or-flight system of the body, and this is really, really significant. Let's think about the great big bear for a moment. We're all sitting here, and just at the back, there's a commotion, and the doors flow open, and a huge great bear appears at the back of the room. Now, when we see the bear, we immediately initially scream, me louder than you, and then... (laughs) a huge amount of hormone, particularly adrenaline, is secreted into our blood systems. And we all jump out of our chairs at super speed and we all make haste for this side of the building and then we disappear out onto the green outside. Now, what we don't do is we don't hang around and go, oh, I wonder if those teeth are really sharp. Oh, those claws look quite small compared to a normal bear. Or he doesn't actually look that strong. Or maybe it's just Rick Warren in a bear suit. <laughs> but we don't hang around to ask those sort of questions because our endocrine system is used to keeping us safe. You know, if there's a dinosaur on the scene, you don't hang around to check out whether he's really mean. You just get out of the way as soon as possible. And as human beings, we're struggling, if you like, with a, a security response which God has created in us which has kept us safe and well for, for, for many thousands of years. But in our 21st century society, we rarely need the fight-or-flight system to the extent that actually it's, it's prevalent in our, in our lives. Now, what can happen here with what I call, our term, presumed validity is that we respond very dramatically and very suddenly to worries that appear in our mind all the time. The challenge is that we need to face the fear and do life anyway. Now, if we... Uh, if we allow those musings of our mind to take thought dominance and become threat dominant, and if we respond, if you like, in the fight or flight response to the worries, we can begin to shake and panic and we can move into... I could talk about GAD or about panic disorder uh, or other anxiety disorders, which there are many. We want to keep this quite light today and focus really just on worry. But if, if you take this to its ontological conclusion our bodies respond and affirm that what we're actually fearful of is most likely to come true, not least likely. And what you've all proved to me today, again, is highly unlikely that the majority of your worries are going to become a reality. Now, that's easy for me to say up here, but it's actually really hard when you're still worrying about Sue or when you're still worrying that you're still thinking about James Bond when I told you three slides ago that you should stop (laughs) thinking about him. So what we need is a perspective change. I don't know if this photo is going to come up very well, actually. Oh, yes, it does. Here's a guy on the beach in somewhere nice, Bermuda. Okay, and he's holding on to the sun. Well, that's what it looks like. So we need to move by making what we call new appraisals from believing our worries outright and assuming that they are supported by our endocrine system and that somehow affirms their validity to becoming more questioning people who bring what is in secret now into the light. We need to move from, I need to resolve this worry, to, it's typical for me to experience an ant like this. So what we want you to do today is to think about yourself more concretely, more objectively. Because our first response and our first reaction is to say, I need to get away from this right now. I need to fix this problem or I need to resolve this problem right now. And right now, this has got my absolute attention. When actually we need to speak to ourselves with a more sympathetic voice and start saying, it's really common for me, as a warrior to have a whole plethora of different anxiety-provoking thoughts. This is one of many ants that I've experienced today. And it's an ant that I'm not going to respond to. I'm going to change the way that I approach my own thoughts. And I'm leaning here on what we call cognitive behavioral therapy tools. But I want to say that these things are very important, very helpful, because I believe not so much in cognitive behavioural therapy, although I do believe in that, I believe absolutely in the Gospel, and the principles of cognitive behavioural therapy are in the Christian Gospel. Because Jesus says that you can change. He says you can be transformed. And you can be transformed, in Timothy, Paul says you can be transformed in your mind. And I believe that we can be transformed in our thinking. And friends, if you don't think that this is true... I want to tell you that this is true for me, so you can decide for yourself, because I am the only man here on the speaking rostrum, and I am speaking to 800 of you right now. And at the moment, I'm feeling quite relaxed, and my flow, I think, is starting to come together a little bit more. In 1 Corinthians 13 12, it says, Now I see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we shall see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. Now, this verse is helpful to me because I'm using it as a new appraisal. I'm saying, actually, at the moment, I'm only seeing a partial and an incomplete picture. So when I'm beginning to worry, I'm applying that truth to my life, and I'm saying, I'm feeling really worried about... Sue. I'm going to get stuck on this Sue thing today. It's really, that is a, I need to flip the script there. But um, I'm really worrying about Sue. But then I'm thinking, I don't know the full or complete picture right now. I know that this worry thought has come into my mind, but it's not necessarily true or valid. I'm going to change my approach to it. I'm going to talk a bit more about how to do that in just a moment. The answer to the problem of worry is not worrying less or more, but changing the way in which we understand the worry process. Corey Ten Boom says, worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around the center of fear. You know, I love Kari Ten Boom. She's Dutch, and that's one of the reasons why I love her. She's also extremely brave, and that's one of the reasons she's an inspiration to me. But if you want to find someone who knows something about worry, take a woman who was in a concentration camp. Take a woman who was locked in a shed with other women who were routinely raped and abused, and then ask her if she had anything to worry about. She's an inspiration. Here's someone who knows something about worry. Here's someone who didn't worry in the most harsh and painful and awful of circumstances. And I find this, this acrostic really helpful for you to hold on to. Fear is false evidence appearing real. And carry this one with you when a worry pops into your mind. Most of our fear is actually false evidence appearing real. A very, t- very few times in our life are we genuinely fearful for our lives. And, and then fear is really helpful. But so often for us today, we become terribly fearful about things which actually are false. Evidence which is appearing to be real, but isn't actually real. Now, I want to think, think about this just for a moment with me. I think they might have come back into fashion, but in, when I was at school, we used to have these push pencils. You know, and they had about eight or nine different colored leads in them. And you, know, you, you, you kind of move through to the one that you really wanted, and they didn't last long. Um, so here we are with our push pencil in our hands. And to start off with, we've got the yellow lead at the end. So we're like, oh my goodness, I've, oh, this yellow lead's making me so anxious. I've got to get this, this yellow lead out of this pencil. I've got to get rid of this yellow lead. So we spent ages fretting about the yellow lead and we finally get it out of the pencil and it's gone. And we're like, hurrah, it's gone. And we push it in the end of the pencil and suddenly we've got the brown lead there. And then we're like, oh my goodness, the brown lead. I don't want the brown lead in this pencil. I'm so terrified about this brown lead. So we spend ages agonizing and ruminating about the brown lead. And then we put it on the pencil again. And we think, oh, I'm glad that worry's resolved. And then we push that in the back of the pencil. And then six months later, the yellow lead comes round again. We're like, oh my goodness, the yellow lead is back. Have you you seen that happening in your life? Have you seen how six months down the line, the thing that you were worrying about before has suddenly come back and you're worrying about it again as if it was new, as if you've never experienced it before? And yet, it's exactly the same thing. And if you've got children, you know exactly what I mean. You start worrying about one thing about your children, you're really worrying about it, and you ask all your friends for reassurance, which is something we'll talk about in a minute. And you want them all to make you feel better, and they'll go, oh, don't worry about it. Oh, it's exa- I feel exactly the same. Oh, oh, it's, let's pray about it. It's all the same. Oh, it's so the same. And we go home, we think, oh, phew, oh, I feel so much better now. And then we go back to church and six months later we say, oh, you know about my kid? I was worried about it before. I'm just so worried about it again. They go, oh, again, oh, me too, me too. I feel the same. I feel the same. Let's just embrace one another. Let's pray about it. Oh, take it away. It's not the problem. It's not the reality. It's false evidence appearing real. Let's just hear this SIDS worry idea from me here. Worry makes you feel like you're doing something important, even being caring. One of the key challenges in overcoming the problem worry is this floating worry. where where the purposes of doing something, the purposes of worry, seem valuable. I think about the hamster in my wheel here for the moment. You know, the hamster's in his cage. He's been going around the same cage for many years now. He's thinking there must be another hamster place with other hamsters, maybe even female hamsters. And we might go to that place and we might have a jolly time together as hamsters all together. So I need to find some way in which I can maybe mobilize myself towards these other hamsters. And then I see in my cage a huge wheel. I'm thinking a wheel. I know humans get around using wheels. And so the natural thing for me to do is get into this wheel and I begin to run. And I run and I run and I run because I think at one point in the future I might well run out of my cage and I might land up in this land of other hamsters, maybe even female hamsters. We might have a nice time there together. But the reality is even though I feel like this is an important, valuable exercise and I might at the end of the day reach the destination that I'm dreaming of, I never actually get anywhere. It feels important but I go nowhere. Nowhere. You know, worry is a process just like that. I think the devil loves worry. He loves it. He thinks it's brilliant. Because the best thing that he can possibly do is make the saints completely inactive. And inactive in a way that they think they're being busy and productive. Hooray! There are all the Christians. Look, off they go. Worry, worry, worry. Now they can't do any mission and ministry. They're completely exhausted by themselves. This is going to look terrible on a video. Please don't cut it to YouTube. My little daughter has learned to ride a bicycle. It's not going so well so far at the moment, but I'm not worried about it. But I wanted to let you know. I wanted to let you know that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there, I'm on the bench, we're at the park, the bicycle is there, you know, we're going in circles, this is the plan, the bicycle goes round, the girl goes round on the bicycle. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, oh, stay on the bike, stay on the bike, stay, stay on the bike! Now, I'm worrying because I'm caring. Is my worry magically sticking my daughter to her bike? <laughs> Does my worry have any genuine benefit to my daughter? Yes, it shows that I care. But in reality, doesn't the atmosphere, maybe the sense of trust and delight that I have in my daughter, slightly come unhinged there when I'm going, Ah, oh, stay on your bike, love! Some people say, oh, I worry because I care. Parents say that all the time. I worry because I care. Can I say, friend, love your kids? Don't worry about them. No. Worry isn't a way of loving. Worry is just a displacement. Worry is just an activity which is fruitless. It has no benefit. We have to undo the devil's idea that the worry has magical power. It has no power. Only Christ has power. And he's called us to love, not to worry. In order to deal with this, in order to fully accept what Christ is saying, we need to deal with this one particular big problem in our lives. And this is the idea of certainty and uncertainty. The real answer to worry is the problem of dealing with uncertainty. There's one group of people over here, they like to wear this pin badge, and there's another group of people over here that like like to wear this pin badge. This is the pin badge of certainty, and this is the pin badge of risk. Now we think, "Oh my goodness, those people who wear the pin badge of risk, they're so, they're so risky. They're so dangerous. We don't like them in churches, but we like the people of certainty. We love these safe people, these secure people, these people who love everything to be just so. You know, people who love, people who make an idol out of certainty, are terrible warriors. I need to be certain, I need to be sure, I need to be absolutely right, I need to make sure that I've got everything absolutely nailed down. You know, control is, a, is such a disease in the 21st century because we believe that we can control everything. Health, wealth, finances, education, family life, you name it, we can control it. We've got an app for that. <laughs> it's believed in our own psyche that the only way to find peace is to resolve a presenting worry. I just need to fix this. I just need to sort this out and then I can relax. Have you heard those famous words? If you've woken up in the morning, especially on a winter's morning like this. I've just got a new, uh, what's it called now, electric blanket. It's the way forward. This is particularly bad if you want to be productive. Because you can turn it on and be warm again in the morning. Um, so you're lying there and you've woken up. And, and you just kind of like, you open your eyes. And for a moment, the world is still, and you just can't think of anything, and it's the most blissful and wonderful moment, and just as you enjoyed it, pow, suddenly in your mind come like a hundred thousand different things that you need to control and worry about and, and sort out before the day is done, and then by the end of it all, you collapse into bed utterly exhausted, and then you wake up in the morning, and just for three or four seconds, you felt great. Now, I believe that God wants you to feel a bit more of that duvet feeling for a bit longer in your day. Tolerating uncertainty is fundamental to life and happiness. You need to learn to be tolerant of uncertainty. That means you have to renege on your belief that you can control your life. You know, I didn't become a Christian to then do all the work. I became a Christian because I believe in a God who's going to do the work and because I believe in a God who's omnipotent and all-powerful and sovereign and I'm going to rest in his presence. I'm going to rely on his power. I'm going to lean back in his arms. And yet I see a church that's consumed by busyness and activity and a church that hates uncertainty, that can't tolerate doubt, that despises risk. We personally have to say Father, I can be uncertain about tomorrow because you've got tomorrow in your hands. You know, the best piece of CBT teaching uh, in the world is in in Matthew chapter 6. You know, Jesus, he, he says, who by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Who by worrying can stick their daughter onto a bike and make her not fall off? Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. What a genius piece of CBT. You cannot control tomorrow. I am the Lord of the years. That means I have every day in the palm of my hand. You need to let me be a lamp into your feet. Not a searchlight down your pathway. Not a highlight down your motorway. Not saying, oh God, but in the future, you know, what might happen? Oh Lord, I need to know now. Please give me these eternal binoculars of holy hope so that I might know exactly what's going to happen in every single day of my life and season. Amen. We need to recognize that we overvalue certain ideas, and, and with uh, part of uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder and also some GAD, we talk about overvalued ideation, which is, um, which is the idea that some values, some, some ideas we have, we believe strongly. Our worries can feel urgent. Let's just see this on the slide. Our worries feel urgent or significant. Our ideas about ourselves are very often unrealistic. We have a black and white thinking style, and we may be compelled to be, as I've said, in control. If you're a feelings person, an intuitive person, the drive to fix your feelings is incredibly strong. You know, I need to feel safe. I need to feel happy. I need, I must, I ought three words which we should ban from the dictionary. Expectations for ourselves are often unrealistic, particularly in churches. I think Ari expressed this brilliantly earlier when she talked about masks. We expect Christians to be happy and shiny and bright and perfect. As Kay did too, we we feel shame and yet we present perfection. Black and white thinking styles are really common in in warriors. Either I am safe or I am unsafe. Either I am successful or I am a failure. Either I am beautiful or I am terribly, terribly ugly. But there is no balance, there is no in-between, there is no measure of reality. We need to become more realistic as we approach each worry. Remember that what we see now is like in a mirror, just a broken reflection, but soon we should see clearly. Now we see just in part, but then we should see face to face. Invite the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, what do I actually believe here? What is actually true and realistic about this particular worry? Let's just move on to this idea, which is that false expectations matched with character-assassinating self-talk underpin most worry cycles. Now, by this, I mean it sounds rather technical, but it's quite simple, really. Dr Joanne Moncrief, consultant psychiatrist at UCH, said this year, we live in a culture that makes people anxious. It encourages the idea that everything can be achieved or bought, that 100% is not enough, that you have to be the perfect wife and mother and succeed in your career. We've become less and less able to tolerate and endure life's ordinary difficulties. Very often we have false expectations, and I know women particularly struggle in this area. I need to be a beautiful, wonderful wife and mother and a career woman and a successful ministry leader, and I have to do X, Y, and Z in in so many different strata of my life. So we have false expectations, but then we match that to this character-assassinating self-talk. I'm useless, I'm stupid, I'm a failure, I'm ugly, I'm pathetic. If I cannot do this, this is what I am. But friend, who you are is defined by who he is. You know, he said, you are my beautiful daughter, you are my precious child. Nothing you could do or think or say can make me love you any less or love you any more. I love you as I am. I went to the cross for you. You are perfection in my eyes because I've made you perfect. We need to hear a little bit more of what God says. We need to nurture the divine self-talk, the one that comes from Kay's beautiful illustration, the the, the father model, the the, the mother model, the the good parent that's affirming us as children of him so we can undo that negative self-talk that propagates worry. There's a little kind of simple equation here for you to, to, to reinforce that point. We talk about the ABC's rule in, in psychology, the actions, beliefs, and consequences. So if we could just see this. Um, I, I slightly amended this. We call, I call these I-beliefs. Because actions or events, these can be like meeting Sue by the water cooler again or whatever it is that, that you want to think about. And um, so I don't work with a woman called Sue, just in case you're worrying. I'm, like, I'm sort of drawn to her, strangely. Um, LAUGHTER Actions or events, as I say, I beliefs are are, are the beliefs that we have through which we view what happens in the world around us. And the Cs are the consequences of seeing the As through the Bs. I see a truck, I believe that it's speeding, I step back on the pavement. Here's a simple cycle of A, B, C. Our version, including I beliefs, it's all Apple, thank you Apple for that, um, is that I feel unwell, I believe I am weak, and I worry that I have the bubonic plague. You know, this is so typical. You know, I believe health anxiety. I mean, how many people here have been hitting netdoctors.com recently? You know, I remember when I was really struggling with worry, I, I was in Australia. And uh, I had, um, I remember I was traveling and I had, ble- I, I was brushing my teeth one day and I had bleeding gums. I think I read on a, on a poster somewhere that HIV AIDS, that one of the signs of that was actually bleeding gums. I remember thinking about my past and thinking, it's not that bad, I'm sure. There's, no, there's nothing, there's, you know, there's no way I could have contracted this, this disease. But I remember being terrified. How unrealistic. I beliefs. I'm unworthy. I'm unwell. I'm the sort of person who's just rubbish, who doesn't deserve good things from God. You know, I haven't got it together in my life. Everything we view is catastrophic. We do what we call catastrophizing. If our I beliefs are really low. But if our God beliefs... If the I am beliefs are right, then we begin to view the world through His eyes, and we begin to say, "No, I'm not become slave again to fear. I'm a, I'm a slave only to Christ, and that makes me a victor." In summary of this little part, there's this idea. I think it's more than an idea. I think it comes from God. That worry keeps us from admitting our powerlessness and accepting God's sovereignty. The devil loves that, doesn't he? I'm going to give you the illusion that you're still in control. Because actually, if I give you that illusion, I'll keep you from really relying on the sovereignty of a God who is sovereign, who is in charge. Romans 5 verse 6 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We just need to keep remembering, friends, that we are powerless, but he is power. In Habakkuk 3.19 it says the sovereign Lord is my strength he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to go on to the heights I just love that I just when I'm in a worry place I think the Lord his strength he is strength for me he's strength to you women here today begin to see your I beliefs as the I am beliefs and ask God to change what's moving in your heart now I wanted to offer you just a couple of treatment approaches if you're really struggling with worry, and and I've got just three simple ones to offer you uh, today. I cannot tell you how important it is to know yourself and to ask God to bring revelation to your life as you begin to view how you're dealing with worry. One of the best ways that you can begin to understand your worry narrative is something we call thought record charts. Now, if this sounds frightening and if this is worrying you, that's a good thing. People are terrible at writing things down, particularly warriors, because in themselves they know somewhere deep down inside that there's something humiliating, there's something shame-filled about being a warrior. But I want to encourage you, even if this is just for your own secret viewing, to use a thought record chart over the course of one month to find out exactly what is it that you're worrying about, to write these things down. And on our website, mindandsoul.info, you'll find that there's free downloadable thought charts for you to use. But what you can do then is you can look back and go, wow, on Monday morning, I was still worrying that, that I, I should not be thinking about Daniel Craig anymore. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then you know, on, on Thursday, I was terrified again that I had the bubonic plague from Will's talk when I Googled it on neckdoctors.com. And, and then on Friday, I was thinking it might get a hamster, but I was so worried it might want to leave me that, that, I, that, I, that I, you know, I was terrified by that and so much adrenaline running around my system. Write it down and review it. Because you'll be amazed that you will have worry themes which bring revelation to deeper problems in your life, to hidden concerns and fears. And this isn't an antidote to those things. It brings those things into a point of revelation. If actually our underlying I belief is that I deserve to be abandoned, that will become transparent when you do a full record chart. Because all of your fear will be about being left by people or abandoned by people. And then you can begin the deeper work of trying to find resolution to that issue and letting God give you a sense of security and protection. Making new appraisals, if you like, is a step on from thought record charts. Actually, if you imagine an old gramophone record, if we keep playing the same record through the same groove all the time, with just that one groove, over time, that will cut quite a deep groove, and then the needle doesn't really want to move. It just keeps bouncing back into the same groove. And our neurochemistry is such that our brain's like a great circuit system. If we keep reusing the same circuits, the brain becomes programmed to keep reusing those same circuits, even if they're faulty. Making new appraisals enables us to start using other maybe unused circuitry in the brain. It cuts new grooves in a record, and and, and as I was so eloquently said by Kay today, if you change something, you'll change something. So making new appraisals is like Disco Dave. Imagine Disco Dave, he's wearing white spandex, and he's going to the disco. So he, he goes, struts into the discotheque, some of his best moves, everyone is dancing. And as he drives out onto the dance floor, he's been watching Saturday Night Fever, and he's really throwing it down. Now, at that moment all of Dave's friends burst into hysterical laughter. But Dave, rather than carrying on dancing, suddenly has a worried thought fired through from his amygdala. And it says, Dave, you can't dance, you look like an idiot. Now, Dave's eternal narrative is, I believe is, maybe I'm a bit of an idiot. So actually, Dave feels suddenly crushing adrenaline. He feels very low, he feels ashamed. He turns around and he walks away from the dance floor. And then he stands by the bar, And he watches his friends dance the night away. And then he goes home feeling terribly sad and ashamed. Now, imagine the same scenario. Disco Dave struts into the dance floor, starts throwing down Saturday night fever. All his friends start laughing. He thinks, great, they love it. Come on, and he does even more. (laughs) Now, exactly the same thing has happened for Disco Dave in both scenarios. They're precisely the same, yet his belief about what is going on is completely different. Now imagine the third scenario, Disco Dave, he goes to the disco, he starts throwing down all the big moves, all his friends start laughing, he suddenly feels ashamed, he feels anxious, he feels worried, he goes to the bar and then he says, I'm not going to go home because that's what we would call a safety behaviour, that would be running away from something that's making me afraid and I I heard a talk recently where I was told to feel the fear and do it anyway. So I'm going to stand here and I'm going to begin to think up some new appraisals about this situation. So initially he thinks, right, what could have happened was someone maybe fell over behind me on the dance floor and everyone started laughing at them. And he thinks, that's probably unlikely, but it's a new appraisal all the same. The exercise here is actually to make a new appraisal, not to believe it. And then he thinks, um, well, maybe I did look a bit stupid, you know, by throwing my arms up so big and wide. And actually, you know, that was a bit funny. But then if you turn the music off, everyone would be look, look quite stupid as well. So that, that kind of makes that a bit, a bit better, doesn't it? And then he thinks, well, maybe my, my, I know my friends really like me, and yeah, that was quite flamboyant, Uh, maybe it was a bit silly, but I think they still like me, even though I was dancing in a slightly stupid way. So now, having made three new appraisals, remember, I don't really believe them, because I'm biologically tuned through presumed validity to believe that actually I'm an idiot, but I'm going to go and do another experiment now, which is I'm going to go back on the dance floor and I'm going to start dancing again in a similar way. And I'm going to see what the reaction is. So Disco Dave goes back onto the dance floor, starts throwing up the big moves in exactly the same way. And no one laughs. All his friends goes, Dave, where did you go? Where did you go, mate? Oh, just went to get a quick drink. Great! And they all start dancing. Now Dave goes home feeling Fantastic. What changed was he made three or four new appraisals that he didn't really believe, but they gave him the confidence to go back and do another experiment. New appraisals are a fantastic way of you taking control against problem worry. Dealing with the the fear that comes through uh, the sort of intolerance you have to uncertainty and accepting that in life, many things are uncertain. Dave might never know if his friends were really laughing at him or with him on that day but he's chosen to think something new and to make a significant change. Now, I've only got three or four minutes left, but, but, but I know we want to pray in just a moment. But the final one I want to just mention to you is something we call present contemplation. Now, present contemplation is a bit more complicated. And you might have heard some things about mindfulness uh, in, in secular settings. Uh, it's very popular at the moment, and clinical outworking suggests that the results are very good. But we've, we've kind of slightly Christianized this. We've based this piece of teaching on Jesus' command to be watchful and, and kind of mindful. I believe that mindfulness is something that, that God's enabled us all to do. To, if you like, think of ourselves with a greater consciousness that comes from him. And really our work is towards real freedom, which I believe isn't in thought record charts or making new appraisals. It's moving to a place where actually you can allow and accept some worried thoughts in your life without actually diving into fixing them or sorting them out. You can allow them to be present in your consciousness. And you don't even need to pray about them. In fact, by praying about them, you might strengthen them and make them more powerful. You're just called to live, if you like, presidentially, as Christ has called you to, if you like, putting in a bubble some of the things that you're concerned about and leaving them there. Not pushing them away or inviting them into yourself, but just holding them there, letting them be there. Now, one of the weird things about this is if you can leave that worry in that bubble for 15 minutes, it will stop being a problem to you. It's remarkable. It's the way the adrenal system works. It goes up for the first 15 and down for the next 45. If you can learn, if you like, to allow and tolerate the unpleasant feelings that come with worry for 15 minutes, whilst that little bubble of worry is floating around in the ether then you're far better equipped to deal with it than you would be if you, then you just dived into it like a great swimming pool in the first moment. Now, I, I'd, I'd want to steer you, if you like, to some more reading on that because I haven't got the time to do it justice just in this moment. And there's some material on the Mind and Soul website that you can, read, you, know, you can read about it and hear about it there. I just want to move on to this final slide. I, I want to be the only person in the history of HTB to have quoted 50 Cent from the stage... <laughs> So um, here's 50, and 50 says, you should either pray or worry, but don't do both. So this is straight talking advice from, from Fiddy, or 50, however you want to call it. Um, I, I'm trying to stay down with the kids. I, I, I went to a hairdresser the other day, I just sat down and said, like a Gary Barlow, please. He said, fine, I, no problem. Um, 2 Timothy 1, seven says this, I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. I believe... That we should, as Christians, not pray and worry. We should just pray. You know, we should just commit what we have to God. We should enact some of these techniques, some of these activities that I've talked about. We should agree with God. We should take action. We should take off our victim masks and say, Jesus, I want to do this. I want 90% of my worry time back to spend glorifying you.